Well, thank you, Celia. Let's have a word of prayer. May God, the Father, who spoke and called the universe into being, may God, the Son, who is the living word of God, may God, the Holy Spirit, who makes these things real for us today and brings God's light and life to bear in our church and in our lives. May God, the Holy Trinity, be with us and speak to us from his holy word. Amen. I'd be especially grateful if you would have a Bible open in front of you, um, page 1084. Unusually for me, I have nothing to show you on the slide this evening, and uh, the main reason for that is, apart from us eyeballing each other like this, um, I want us to have our heads in the Bible so you can see uh, with me if these uh, things are so. But just think for a moment, it's a horrible thought, isn't it, to try to imagine life without someone who you love dearly. Even if that separation's a temporary one, um, your son or your daughter going off to uni for the first time, a dear friend um, emigrating to some distant corner of the world, or an elderly relative leaving their own home and perhaps you're uh, uh, leaving your home in order to go into care uh, in another, another part of the country. Even though you'll see, you hope to see uh, those people again and we certainly will have contact with them, it's still a painful experience to be saying goodbye for them, even if only for a few days or weeks or months. So imagine the disciples' situation here, uh, the context of our reading that Celia has just given to us. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, were having to get used to the life, uh, to, to the prospect of life without Jesus. They're sharing one last meal with him, what we call the Last Supper. He has told them that he must leave them. He's also told them at the beginning of this chapter that they can expect to be treated with terrible hostility after he has gone. And yet they've got to carry on without him and witness on his behalf before a hostile world. How do you think they felt about that? And they would have thought mission impossible. And we would have thought the same, wouldn't we? And yet he says in verse 6, do you say that with me? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But then in verse 7, he says a most surprising thing. It is for your good that I'm going away. I mean, what must they have been thinking? How can it possibly be good that you're going away? We love you and we have trusted you. We have been with you night and day over, these past, uh, over this past year or two. And now you say you're going and that's good? And then Jesus explains why it's good that he's going away. Unless I go away, he says, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus will go and the counsellor will come 
That's the order of things. And Jesus says, that's good. And Jesus explains himself in two ways in particular. He says, when the spirit comes, when the counselor comes, the first thing that he will do, verse 8, is he will convict the world of guilt. When the counselor comes, he will convict the world of guilt. Now, this word counselor is referring to the Holy Spirit. That connection is clear enough in chapter 14 and verse 26. They are two names for the same person, counselor and Holy Spirit. And I'm told that the underlying Greek word for counselor is the word parakletos. And if you were to pick up six different translations of the Bible in English, you you might find that word parakletos translated six different ways. Comforter, advocate, helper, companion, friend, strengthener, strengthener, counsellor. Well, that's seven, actually. (laughs) Um, It's a very rich word because the Holy Spirit has many different roles. But in this passage, it's clear that the translation counsellor is very fitting in the following sense. That in this passage, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit as paraclete will act as counsel for the prosecution. He will convict the world of guilt, he says. Look with me at verse 8. He will convict the, the, the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Just a quick footnote on this word world as generally used in John's writings. When John uses the word world, he is meaning something like this. The world for John is those persons, those places, those pleasures, and those pursuits that are hostile to God. That same world... (laughs) that John says, of which is recorded in John chapter 3, that God so loved it so much that he sent his only son to save it, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the world is those people, etc., that are hostile to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's take these one at a time, these three things, sin, righteousness, judgment. The Holy Spirit, as counsel for the prosecution, will convict the world of sin, Jesus says in verse 9, because men do not believe in me. Think about it like this. We are a visited planet God has come down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and visited us. And to reject this greatest gift of all, God's gift of his own son, to reject this greatest of all realities is to commit the greatest of all wrongs. For God to offer the gift, and for you or I to say, I don't want it, I'm not interested, go away. Leave me to myself is defined here as a sin that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of. 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit, as counsellor, will convict the world of righteousness. You could think of that word as perhaps the equivalent of justice. Because, again, we are, we are in, in a legal con- context here when the, when the Holy Spirit is counsel for the, uh, for, for the prosecution. He will commit the world of righteousness or of justice. And Jesus explains in verse 10 uh, why this is so. Because, he says, I go to the Father. Just try to get that connection. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness, says Jesus, because I go to the Father. What's that all about then? Well, surely it means this, that after men have killed Jesus, God will, and and so therefore, condemning Jesus as a criminal to death, to execution, God will raise this same Jesus to life and receive him up into heaven. The one whom the world condemns, Jesus, uh, God, will utterly vindicate. Justice will be done. God will raise his son. And the third thing the Spirit will do as counsel for the prosecution is convict the world of judgment. Verse 11, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, you know who the prince of this world is, don't you? It's Satan, the devil. And the scriptures elsewhere teach that this world, hostile as it is to Christ, is in the power of the evil one. But now Jesus is saying, when the spotless son of God died, the evil one seemed to have won the day. But by that very death, the death of Jesus on the cross, Satan himself has been dealt a fatal blow. Satan has been fatally wounded. He now stands condemned and fatally wounded. And like a fatally wounded wild animal, he can still do harm, but he cannot do ultimate harm. He is condemned. To be on Jesus' side, as, uh, to borrow the words of an old chorus, to be on Jesus' side in respect of the world and the flesh and the, de- and the devil is to be on the victory side. So that's three things then that the Holy Spirit will do as counsel for the prosecution. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and for the reasons given. But there's a second thing that the Spirit will do, what the counselor will do when he comes, says Jesus. And you see this in verse 13. In verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. Always need to recall who is speaking to whom. In the first instance, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's saying, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, will guide you into all, all truth. And further on in verse 13, Jesus will expand on that a little little bit by saying he will tell you what is yet to come. I guess at this moment, our our instinct is to jump straight to the end of the world, to the second coming, to the last days. Maybe that's right, (laughs) but I have my doubts. Think about it again. This is the night before Jesus died. What is to come? (laughs) What is uppermost in his mind and theirs? Tomorrow and three days later, Jesus' death and resurrection. And after that, his ascension. And after that, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
I tend to think that's what Jesus had in mind when he says the Holy Spirit will tell you what is yet to come. He will teach you the meaning of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. Excuse me. And then in verse 14... Uh, it's made a little clearer again, I think. He will bring glory to me, says Jesus, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The Holy Spirit loves to bring the things of Jesus to the world, to us, to you and to me. The Holy Spirit speaks not of himself. He points always to Jesus. So that's fairly brief on that, but I just want to pause and say we've done two things, tried to do two things so far. To say that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of guilt. And then we've said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will secondly guide the disciples into all truth. Are you with me so far? Thank you. (laughs) I see your head nodding. Question then, when will this happen? When will the Holy Spirit and convict the world of sin, uh, of of guilt and so so on? When will the Holy Spirit come and guide you, guide the disciples into all truth? Are you ahead of me yet? Turn, please. Perhaps put a piece of paper or a a welcome card, put it back on the seat afterwards, uh, or your finger in that passage, John 16, and fast forward a few pages to Acts, the next book of the Bible, Acts chapter 2. This is what happens 50 days later. Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Easter. The Holy Spirit has poured out. All those have gathered from almost the four corners of the world have gathered in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit comes and they are heard speaking in different languages, different dialects. And people are saying, what's this all about then? And Peter, the apostle, timid Peter who has denied that he even knew Jesus, and like the rest of the disciples, been nowhere to be seen as Jesus hung on the cross, is now filled with the Holy Spirit. He explains from the prophet Joel what this speaking in tongues is all about, and then at the first opportunity starts pointing to Jesus. And what he says is this, verse 23. He says to the the assembled crowd, you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing him on the cross. Now that looks very much to me, I don't know if you agree, like conviction of sin. (laughs) Convicted, Convicted, the Holy Spirit, through the words of Peter, convicting those people of their sin, of their crime of so unjustly putting Jesus to death. Glance on at verse uh, 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. This is a word 
about righteousness or justice, of saying that God has vindicated the Lord Jesus. Jesus condemned as a criminal, but vindicated by God, who has raised him to life. And Peter has more to say about that one, that too, in this great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Or then look on to verse 34. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That seems to me like a verdict. The exercise of judgment, if you like. I think it's very clear, just from those verses and from others too, not only in this great Pentecostal sermon, but elsewhere as the book of Acts unfolds, that the Holy Spirit, through the words of the apostles, is convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What happened when those people heard those words, those spirit-filled words from the Apostle Peter? Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other, other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter, replying, said, It's too late. You've lost your chance. You had every opportunity under the sun. Forget it. Go home. No hope for you. Didn't say that at all, did he? What did Peter say? Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conclusion, verse 41. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's a summary of where I think we've reached so far. The Holy Spirit convicts the world through the words of those who have been guided into all truth. Peter, timid, fearful Peter, had been filled with the Holy Spirit and so was enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God boldly. The Holy Spirit had taught him the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And now he's able to preach that message with a boldness and a clarity and a truthfulness that he could not have dreamed of just a few short weeks before. Two implications, excuse me once again. Two implications. Just uh, if you can turn back, please, to where you had your piece of paper or your card or your finger in. I've got to find it afresh. John chapter 16. Although, in fact, I'd like you to glance back at uh, John chapter 14 and verse 16. So much of these chapters in John's gospel is about Jesus' teaching about the coming Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, you know him. Uh, Excuse me. The Spirit of truth...
Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor, there's that word again, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So even though it's important for me as preacher and you as hearers to understand that these words in chapter 16 were, were first addressed to the disciples and not to us. The promise of Jesus is that he would be with his people forever. And so therefore it's right and proper for us to appropriate these truths for ourselves today. So let's do that under two headings. First of all, first implication of all this is the Holy Spirit convicts as well as comforts. The Holy Spirit convicts as well as comforts. Some of us, I guess, only want to hear of, about love and joy and peace when we come to church. If we wanted to be depressed, we could stay at home and watch reruns of, 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 of Coronation Street or something. Um, I come to church to be uplifted. I don't come to church to hear about sin and righteousness and judgment. But please let me tell you from Scripture, this is not the Holy Spirit's way. The way to radical healing is to be confronted with the radical nature of our disease. You don't offer an elastoplast to someone who needs a heart transplant. You don't slap a lick of paint onto a collapsing building. A radical problem needs a radical solution. A man was once accused of a serious crime. He pleaded not guilty and a court hearing took place. After the counsel for the prosecution had finished making out the case against him, he changed his plea to one of guilty. The judge was very upset and angry, and asked him why he had wasted the court's time by changing his plea. Well, he said, I hadn't realised that the case against me was so overwhelming. (laughs) And that's what the Holy Spirit does. We may think we're, well, we're not perfect, we know that, but kind of good enough. I mean, God's a good guy, isn't he? He'll overlook our um, little peccadilloes. No, sin is a radical disease, and the Holy Spirit graciously shows just what a radical disease and a problem it is. But remember, the Holy Spirit convicts not in order to condemn, but in order to convert. Not with a view to ruin but with a view to redemption. Rico Tice is uh, a minister, uh, a senior minister at All Souls Langham Place, where Hugh Palmer, uh, who is a, a curate here, been mentioned earlier in the service, is, uh, is rector. And Rico has uh, a passion for evangelism, co-wrote an uh, interrupted course for the Christian faith called um, Discovering, Discovering Christianity. Uh, Christianity Explored, <laughs> excuse me. Um, He tells of a young woman aged 29 who, despite having been raised in a Christian home, had politely kept God at arm's length all her life. She went along to a Christianity Explored course. A few weeks into the course, there's an explanation of sin and the cross. Rico asked, has anyone got any questions or comments? This young woman replied... I cannot believe how I have treated God. She burst into tears and had to leave the room. But that in her life was a turning point. Ever since that moment, she has been a committed follower of Jesus Christ. 
a gracious work of the Holy Spirit. It's to show the depth of our need. I'm not going to stand here and prescribe for you how badly I think you ought to feel about your sin. Some of you feel badly enough already. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, if only you knew just how bad I was in comparison with all the other people I know, then you would know that I'm beyond hope. Some of you may feel like that, and I understand it. You don't need me pontificating about how awful you ought to feel about your your sin. You know that already. But there's others of us feeling, yeah, I do my best. Try and live by the Sermon on the Mount. Try and make I'm as good as the next person. And for those of us who think and feel like that, then we do need to be shown the radical nature of our problem our sin, our rebellion against God. And the Holy Spirit will help us and do that for us. That's the first thing. The Holy Spirit convicts as well as comforts. And the second thing is this. The, the, the Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ and so must, we, so must we. Glance to the end of chapter 15 and Jesus says, he, the Holy Spirit, will testify to me. You also must testify. So as we testify to the Lord Jesus with the Holy Spirit, let's remember he is the senior partner. A famous preacher of um, a generation ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it like this. The Holy Spirit can achieve more in a single hour than we, with all our organization and hard work, can achieve in a lifetime. We rely on utterly on the Holy Spirit to do any lasting good in the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Do you feel discouraged in your efforts to share Jesus in a world that seems increasingly hostile towards him? Do you feel very much on your own as one of the very few Christians in your family, in your class at school or college or in your team at work? Remember, it's no cliche that one plus the Holy Spirit is a majority. Do you come regularly to church? Do you meet in a home group? Um, Do you attend one of our young people's groups, our student groups, or uh, digging deeper after Sunday evening? Um, uh, Do you, or are you planning to meet up one-to-one to read the Bible and pray with another Christian? Because of the Holy Spirit, then we can and we should expect things to happen. When we read the Bible's testimony to Jesus Christ, and and when we pray to God the the Father through Jesus Christ, as someone put it like this, I don't know how prayer works. All I know is that when I don't pray, things don't happen. And when I do pray, things do happen. Try it. Try reading the Bible and praying and asking for the Holy Spirit to help you with both activities. It is for your good that I'm going away, says Jesus. How good it was that Jesus, after his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension to his Father's right hand in glory, how good it was he sent the gift of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to be with his people everywhere and forever. It was good for those first disciples huddled together fearfully in that upper room. And it's good for us too, as we face the challenge and the adventure of being his witnesses today. Amen.